we just have to admire. We are in the middle of Europe, millions of people around, and there is these Alps, and there are multiple glacial landing spots in the middle of one of the densest populated area on this planet. And I mean, I go down to the airfield and 25 minutes later, I'm at 3000 meters, no cell phone reception, and you're completely off the grid. Well, 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 good day and welcome everyone to episode number one of the Stoll Collective. I'm your host, Maxime Compagnon. TSC is all about backcountry, mountain and stall flying. I love it. Who wouldn't? Do you love it as much as I do? Well, if that's the case, please tell your friends about it. Share on your social platforms and write a review on Apple Podcast. If you want to contact me, my email is contact at thestollcollective.com or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thestollcollective. If you've been around the Swiss and international snowboard scene for the past 30 years, but also in what we love to talk about, mountain flying, especially in the Alps, you've for sure heard about Mr. Roland Primus. Apart from being a legend in the snowboarding industry in Europe, Roland is a true aviation enthusiast, already from a very young age. He is also an award-winning aerobatic pilot and counts camping, windsurfing, surfing, fishing and trekking, especially in the Arctic, amongst his favorite hobbies. But now folks, let's land on the immaculate snow of the Peace Palut Glacier at 13,000 feet and dive into the passion-driven life of Roland, joining us in the Stoll Collective. Welcome from Bavaria to Switzerland and um, today we have Roland Primus with us and uh, at the first episode of the Stall Collective. So Roland, hi. Hi, Maxim. It's good to have you with us. Um, how has it's a been pleasure being with you. Thanks. <laughs> how has been flying these, these last, this summer? Uh, have you been backcountry flying or did you have some possibilities on on glaciers already uh the summer no i don't have the skis on the plane so in the summers i have the wheeled 26 inch bush wheel on it the ultralight ones and uh but this summer was a little bit slow going in terms of flying because of uh, also a lot of countries being restricted first of all due to the coronavirus and then uh time just didn't kick in i was uh, in the mountains a lot but uh, a few flights yes but uh, not major project last like in the last years mm. we will we will definitely come back to to these projects um in 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 that episode and and i'm pretty sure we will need some other ones because we have a very good friend in common and uh, who's unfortunately passed away and and we we definitely need to talk together about him and yeah. i'm I think about you if I think about him, so so you're the best person uh, to talk about him, definitely. So um, 
let's uh, let's jump a little back and and could you please tell us how you you started flying because th this is what we are interested about and especially about backcountry flying and and your mountain and mountain flying you're you're flying a lot in the mountains obviously you live in Switzerland in a very high mountain region and I'm sure you you can explain us how how did it start for you Yeah, mountain flying actually came in on another route. First of all, I was, uh, as a young kid, I wanted to become either a lumberjack or helicopter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was my dream. So lumberjack or helicopter pilot. So then with 13 years old, they sent you to these guys, you know, who analyze you. You put some things together and they, they want to predict what you're going to be in life later on. So Uh, yeah, my wish to become a uh, helicopter pilot was then transferred to become a mechanic. You know, the, the idea was, let's get that kid first doing a mechanic, and then uh, you can always switch over to become a helicopter mechanic, and then if you like it, you can be become a pilot. So that was the idea. So wishing of flying was with me very early. I, you know, I started making some parachutes out of napkins, you know, <laughs> bed sheets and jumped over a little hill and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I did actually do my mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as soon as I had my first uh, money in hand, uh, I started flying while I was uh, also teaching uh, skiing. So uh, being a ski instructor in the winter, full time on, worked uh, three jobs, uh, driving a cab at night uh, until two o'clock in the morning, then did the ambulance service from two o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock in the morning. So could sleep beside the ambulance when there was a call. I had to get a doctor, go with the ambulance. And then uh, 9.30, I started ski lessons again. Wow. So that, <laughs> that's how I put the money together then to start flying. I did my license and everything with 20. And uh, then I was running out of money. And snowboarding was taking over. And I jumped full on on snowboarding uh, competition, founded the, the oldest snowboard school in the world and get into that stuff. This was around mid end of the 80s, right? If I remember correctly. Yes, that was uh, actually 82, 83, when I recall, right? In my uh, logbook, the first flights, uh, summer 83. Yeah. Okay, it's when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you so you started to get really involved in snowboarding because I'm, I'm also personally very interested in that because I'm snowboarder too for quite some time. Of mm -hmm. course, not like you, yeah. but uh, it's more like 92. But, uh, but mm -hmm. yes, please, please go on. I think it's, it's a good transition. So about the, the, your snowboard activities because it's very important. Yeah, basically, uh, I started snowboarding uh, after I was coming back from a long windsurfing trip that was uh, when, I, when i was ski instructing in the winter i started that when i was 19 so that's 82 first started going on the snowboard kind of a snowboard we built our own and so on with leather boots and strap on with leather straps and stuff like that and then i thought going back into a job i didn't really like it uh, so i thought why not open up a snowboard school so I did open up a snowboard school uh, and worked uh, two snowboard schools, one in Lenzerheide, I still have, and one in Lox. I sold later on to the ski school over there. 
And then it started. And the meanwhile, I was going to the World Championship, uh, the first one in San Moritz. Uh, did really good there. Got straight away uh, a sponsorship with Burton and continued to competing for Burton for seven years. So did the World Cup by side, did the, the school at home. And at the end, I had just to take a decision and I went on with schooling because in the meantime, we also formed the Snowboard Association in Switzerland. Uh, we've been 14 people as first member or 12. And then I started the Snowboard Formation Association. So I fully dig into the passing the passion of snowboarding over. That was really a satisfying thing. And after a few years, then I stopped um, the competition because if you're teaching and you're making a competition, something has to give, you know, and you, you kind of make a beautiful, nice turn in a competition that's not really going to work. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, flying still been my passion all the time, but I didn't have to found, you know, going around the World Cup and raising the school and everything. So I was uh, paragliding okay. a lot because I think we forgot to to notify to that. Uh, of I assume and I'm pretty sure you were flying uh, uh, certified aircraft. So so we are talking about PPL license and and certified Absolutely. aircraft because yeah, yeah. Uh, we will talk about that later. I have to ask you because I don't remember. But light sport aircraft. So in Europe we say ultralight aircraft. So have been introduced or reintroduced maybe in in Switzerland just a few years ago. So we'll come back to that. But so so you were flying certified aircraft. Yeah, still do these days. And uh, I think there is, uh, yeah, this aviation is really interesting. And uh, what's in my possibility financially, I try to get a hand on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But that was, uh, that's, that's interesting. And I think uh, I, I did a lot of flying with general aviation, um, classic, teach in Cessnas. Then I, The whole snowboarding career came and back in when I was about well, 38 or something, then I restarted flying. I had the founds, the school was going good and everything. So I redid my pilot's license again because it was expired. Okay. So, and so I had to do that again. That was okay. Great teacher. I'm very happy that I had uh, that teacher at this time. That was a, a really gift for me. I learned it the proper way. Mm -hmm. Around around which place of Switzerland already? That is in Badergatz. That's my home airfield now in Badergatz. It's in yes. uh, uh, that's about 40 minutes from where I live. Yeah, and uh, that was cool. Uh, I restarted it and then really got the hang out of it. So it really took me in. Started to doing uh, flying around Europe. Uh, What we mainly did after one and a half year, I started to uh, to look around for for planes because I was flying in a group and uh, that was quite difficult then to get the hand on the plane, you know, and you wanted to go for a two weeks trip. They wanted to bring you back a lot of hours, like four hours a day. Otherwise, they were not satisfied. So I, I knew I need a plane. So we bought the Cessna 177RG, oh. also known as Cessna Cardinals. Yes. And um, 
that was uh, it, it, he was not uh, worth uh, flying. He didn't have an airworthiness certification at that time. And the mechanic from the, the place came with and said, look, uh, you have to invest a little bit, but it, it's a good buy. So we bought that plane. I mean, I looked all over. What kind of plane can we land on grass strip? And what kind of plane can we put the surfboard in? That was important for me. And what does a decent uh, speed with decent fuel? So instead of a lot of people looking at what kind of fuel you use per hour, I'm more the guy who looks how much fuel I need to fly a thousand nautical miles. <laughs> because that that's what I'm interested in. If I fly yeah. 180 knots or 150, I don't care. The question is how much money it takes me to fly from A to B. So the I think the Cessna Cardinal at the end of the day uh, for a general aviation uh, aircraft is one of the best you can get a hand on taking that in equation with that economy, you know, because it flies pretty fast and it doesn't use a lot of fuel. And you can haul a uh, a decent longboard in the back. Oh, really? <laughs> really wow. Fun. Yeah. So I should yeah. be very interested because my wife and I are longboarding too. So <laughs> maybe in the future yeah. we should search for that. Yeah, because it's two screws. The back uh, bench comes out really easily. And then you have the, the last section to get into the, the tail cone. You can, uh, I replace that by a foam board where this longboard just stuck in. Okay. And that was it. Yeah. Wow. So really cool. And also the bikes went in. And so we toured Europe. We had many fantastic trips into wow. the Scandinavian countries with the tent, sleeping somewhere on uh, small airfields and uh, stuff like that. So, yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. So we loved that plane, flew it for 12 or 13 years oh, all awesome. over Europe. Awesome. Yeah, and then uh, basically uh, the plane started to become more expensive, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, the maintenance on the retractable gear and stuff like that was really bad. And it was funny. I was once uh, reading a, uh, a magazine while flying home from our little surf cottage up in Seman. And uh, it's about a three and a half hours flight. So I was reading through a magazine a little bit while Claudia was scanning the area. Suddenly a big bang and uh, we no more power. Oh, we're so, <laughs> <laughs> cruising along there. And I think the, the engine uh, decided to quit because I was reading about new engines. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah and we i looked on the gps uh, uh what's the nearest airfield uh luckily i was teach to always have to tune it in the nearest page so it was straight away there was one with uh, quite a long runway okay so I switched over and said to claude hey, look up the 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 frequency please on the charts that was the days when we still flew with charts not with ipads yes. and uh so uh, she said, I can't find the bloody uh, frequency. I said, yeah, just keep on looking, you know, look. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was I was uh, talking to the controller and said, look, uh, we have uh, suddenly an issue. There is a problem, lost power, rattles a lot. I can't really put the power on. He said, yeah. Uh, and I said, I go into that field. He said, yeah, stand by. And I said, what the hell, stand by? <laughs> 
give me the bloody frequency. There's nothing to be standing by. I'm out of, I'm a glider, you know. And he said, no worry, no worry. And then he came back, gave me the frequency, tuned in the frequency. He said, okay, wish you all the best. I said, yeah, otherwise I would declare an emergency. No, 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 go over, pan, pan is enough, go ahead. So tuned in the frequency, switched over to the new frequency and uh, announced my intentions. And then I knew why the frequency was not on the map. Military or? Yeah, <laughs> the biggest military airfield from the US in uh, at these times in Germany, Giebelstadt. <laughs> the, big, the biggest uh, helicopter, you know, with all the Chinooks and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So super professional, you know, the the, the guy in the yeah, tower. They are, they are. I, I came in, he said, hey, captain, please check three greens. I thought, what the hell does he mean? <laughs> uh, three greens. And I uh, I realized then he mean put the gear down, you know. Then eventually I realized and said to him, look, if I put the gear down now, I, I'm probably not going to make it because of drag. It ah. will come out, I'm sure, but let, let, let me approach a little bit closer. And once I'm there, then then I can make it. He said, okay, fine, everything, and we landed, you know, both uh, fire trucks left and right, ambulance on the side, absolutely wow. professional. But then, Maxime, I don't tell you the paperwork. Oh, yeah, I don't <laughs> want to know. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, that was the time when we met that fantastic shop, because the next time they flew in, checked, there was a cylinder swallowed the valve and we were just about of losing the, 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 the piston so uh, it was a good decision to go there because of loss of oil and everything but uh, so yeah then uh, new engine and so on continue flying in it and then by the time in my career of flying I uh, thought I need a few more things to do so as I become a technical director in snowboarding I persuade myself for every year, Roland, you do a formation where you are a student and where you're going to do a license or an exam so that you never lose connection how you students feel when they want to become snowboard instructors or ski instructors. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So I did all license, commercial pilot, uh, IFR. I did it in England. I did it in Europe. I did it in the States. I did uh, also the, the some more flying. And then I thought, I want to know more. Mm -hmm. And I always had that feeling that flying, there was always this gray area. You know, when they teach you flying, mm -hmm. They teach you to stay away of the stall. Okay. Oh, yeah. They teach yeah, yeah. you how to recover it. <laughs> yeah. You know, they do that, do that. Um, but you never feel really comfortable. And there is this, you know, this envelope where you maneuver. Mm -hmm. You maneuver around that envelope, who is limited by 3.8G, depending on the model and everything. Mm -hmm. But there is more behind that envelope. You know, I couldn't more and, agree. And, uh, yeah, and there is all. I mean, there isn't more to be used in a normal plane because three point eight G. It's the limit. But I don't only mean the the G forces. I also mean the envelope of how you what you can do with a plane. You know what what are the possibility, and 
fair enough, the limited time in an education to become a private pilot doesn't really allow you to discover that. No. And let's face the fact, there is nothing like an advanced course. And it might be a good thing. And I mean, uh, I mean, also teaching ATPL pilots, I mean, you basically teach them to stay in a certain area where it's safe. And you see what happens if they stay outside mm. that box. It, it, it's not really appealing. Mm -hmm. So I thought I want to know more. So I launched myself into aerobatics. And how to do that? Uh, we always wanted to construct the plane. We went Oshkosh multiple times. And wow. I was nearly there to buy an RV. Mm -hmm. Four you know? or? An RV uh, mm -hmm. seven. Seven, seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then I came back to Switzerland and I knew there was a guy in Switzerland, Max Vogelsang, mm -hmm. who designed uh, an aerobatic plane just recently. And I thought to myself, okay, let's give that a shot too. So we went down to Max, uh, had an appointment with him, and they have a big carpenter company. You know, they do roof constructions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they're really super good in woodwork. And they do, they're probably number one address if you want to have a booker restored, you know. Wow because of their craftsmanship in woodwork. Mm -hmm. So I went down there and he showed me how the molds are and how they produce it. So, you know, with an engineering background and with, as a mechanic, I was stuck. Oh, you fell and up, then huh? he said, okay, let's go flying. And that was it. Oh. Claudio went flying, I went flying. Three days later, I called him up and I said, when can we start? He <laughs> said, you can start right away. Okay, let's make a deal. We didn't have the founds and we didn't want to pay the whole kit. We said, can we produce the kit ourselves in your molds and have less labor? He agreed on that. So we produced our own kit and also built it. And the advantage was it was not a two weeks taxi program, but it was working in their, in their store, in their fabric and uh, doing everything by our own. So it was not like he was completely there all the time. It was more like Monday morning, mm -hmm. you know, like two hours briefing, and he put everything in my mind for two hours, and that was all the work I needed to do the whole week. It was a fantastic experience. We started a few weeks in September, and then we went to the winter season, went windsurfing, came back, rented an apartment, and in one summer, 2000. 2,873 hours Claudia and me put in. Wow. And I have to give big credit to her. She was on the milling machine. She was doing everything. Just a little episode. You know the little rips from the ailerons? Mm -hmm. They weighted 58 grams, varying between 58 and 68 grams. You know? Yeah. So Claudia started one. It was 48 grams. Then she went to Max and said, can I do it like this and this? He said, yes, that's possible. She went down to 40, 42 grams. Well, that's and she crazy. did 38 rips or 32, <laughs> however there was, in between two, three grams. You know, and th that's what when we were hooked on. Mm -hmm. We tried to make the most beautiful and lightest water there was. That was the goal. Oh. And 10th of October... Uh, before the winter season was first flight. 
I launched myself into that, uh, did test flying and so on. Unfortunately, I glazed the, the cylinder walls, oh. I, the taxi program, so I had to rehome the cylinders. But next spring, uh, the final paper cannon, you know, we had the 40 hours test flight program to do and everything. And the paper came in on a Saturday morning, you know, and I went to the post office. It's the paper here, it's the paper here, you know, shouting in the room. They weren't even open yet. They said, yeah, go and look, Roland, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, there is a letter here. Took the letter, run home, went in the car, went down to straight. the airfield. And now I could go away and straight to the first competition. Hamilton uh, local competition, you know, Hamilton Trophy Cup. Uh -huh. Went to the competition, went in, became first. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that was a really bummer. That was really cool. Well, that's a legendary uh, story. Yeah, but I have to tell, the it, it's in sportsman category, huh? mm -hmm. uh, because the, the daughter of Max, who was about the same age as me, a little bit younger, mm -hmm. gifted pilot as well as the son, super both high-level, unlimited pilots, and she teached me while I was building the plane. Ah, well, okay. So she teached me uh, aerobatic flying while I was on the uh, on building the on plane. The so the connection was super. I was so well connected with her in terms of confidence and what she did. She didn't have experience in teaching, but my background as a technical director and teaching people and competition competitors since 20 years i could take out so much of her and she was absolutely not afraid of giving everything out you know and and being we had a really super relationship it was fantastic she was sitting in front i'm in the back she said look i show you i explain what i can but you figure it out how you want to do that i was you going know? i was going to ask you on what kind of aircraft and you said she in the front and you in the back so it's kind of an extra it was it was, an extra it was the same plane ah. we built it ah you know okay. we took one of their ones they have a, a monoplane but mostly there are two seaters and i have to say at this time it was probably the most powerful two seater aircraft there was for aerobatics oh. at this time you still could fly not on a world level but on a regional or a national level you still can could fly an unlimited program with that machine oh. i it was once in the hand of he, uh, of her brother urs is his name he gifted freestyle pilot absolutely stunning performance I was scotched to the ground when I saw my plane in the air flying with him. Yeah. And he said, it's flying like a Mono One. Because we really put it very light. Mm. We were really gifted. And we had the great engine, the Barrett engine, fantastic. Put out about 320, 330 real horsepower, you know, not mm. like made yeah. up. And that was a really cool plane. So, um, yeah, it was great. And then I started uh, flying competition for six years. I was really uh, lucky because I always ended up on the podium in all my competition. And you But were, f you were, f you pardon, you were fully dedicated during that time to aerobatic, mostly. So you were not. It was your full. I sold the focus. cardinal. Mm -hmm. We sold the cardinal, and uh, at that time we only had the aerobatic plane. So I was fully into to this. We still used the aerobatic plane 
to fly some uh, trekking trips. Try to imagine we flew that aerobatic plane from Switzerland to nearly the North Cape in uh, Norway, flew up to Kiruna. <laughs> Nobody's it's doing bloody, that. <laughs> yeah, it's bloody 1400 nautical, you know? Well, it's yeah. crazy. And uh, it, it was the only time in my life when I was when I when we came back for that two weeks uh, trekking trip out in the nature in this in the, in the mountains there, I was so exhausted, and I know now I have to do a four hours flight in that machine. And try to imagine it's like you know you're coming back from a big trip and you have to sit into a Formula One car to go yeah. for coffee. You're just not going to do it, you know. No. But yeah. But anyhow, it was. It was really cool that plane flying around with Claudia, and uh, and that that was really fascinating for me in flying because it opened up that envelope, you know. And that plane had plus minus ten Gs. The main spar was tested up to twenty six tons. Wow, twenty six tons, you know. It was a wooden spar and carbon wings. It was a very nice match. And the wooden uh, spar gave you that nice feeling of not like a carbon spar who is much more rigid. And it was a super cool plane. Mm. And, um, but when you start the first time in your life to fly backwards, you know, yeah. zero angle of attack flying, flying backwards, you know, when spinning spinning a plane becomes a pleasure when mm -hmm. spinning inverted becomes even more a pleasure when you look forward to your next long walk you know it's just then i discovered really the whole envelope you know because mm -hmm. you're gonna ki kill yourself or passing out before that machine is even thinking about having a problem yes and um so this uh, this was a great thing, uh, but I have to say, honestly, I was at uh, my 40s and I couldn't do it before because I was, I'm, I'm too much a competitive person and uh, too much going full on. And I was happy that I, I went into that and I went in lately because I was a little bit more mature. And I have to say that that was important, especially for my character, you know, to, to be a little bit more mature in these kind of areas and not to kill yourself by doing some stupid things, you know. Because it goes quick. When you approach the ground with, like, uh, 220 nautical uh, vertical and you pull off, uh, like, uh, 300 feet above ground or even lower you need to be pretty know what you're doing mm -hmm. so okay. yeah i totally yeah. agree although i only yeah. have a, a glider aerobatic uh small background oh, and cool. like two weeks two weeks formation in the south of france uh, already quite maybe 15 years ago now but uh mm -hmm. it was the best i i could do as well definitely i thought i i cannot mm -hmm. more agree with you so of course your yeah. background is way bigger but um but knowing the whole envelope is is uh, is the most important thing, and uh, in in all, I would I wanted to say in what we do. So so currently, because we talk about backcountry and mountain flying and stall, but but I would recommend it to to anybody. Anybody flying an airplane should have at least 
a few aerobatic flights to just get to know the envelope and not be afraid as soon as you come to a stall or or whatever or a, a let's say non-standard position yeah i have a big discussion sometimes also with uh, tom about this and uh, i have to say i agree with certain concerns because let's face the fact when you discover uh, the envelope further on you need to be 100% confident that you'd be able to recover from everything and getting into a stall and getting out of a stall and being confident with that is a great thing but you're pushing the envelope further so I think only a few hours aerobatic doesn't really do you any good no. if you're not 100% confident to recover from every position you are. Yes. So, and that's why I think uh, the push to do a little bit of aerobatics, nah, I'm not 100% sure if that's the right move because what we also see sometimes, and I don't understand that, is that people with a normal certified aircraft probably utility category going up to four or five Gs, uh, pulling into a loop or doing a barrel roll or stuff like that. I mean, when you train your program and you become better, you go from beginner to sportsman to intermediate to advanced to ultimate. And every time you realize when you make a step further, shit, I lost the plane, you know, or I, I just, I wasn't on it. I, I, I recover it, but I wasn't on the ball. And when I think, and I see sometimes these people go off and, you know, and you see them doing stuff. I just think, hey, guys, do you know how quick you can pull seven Gs or eight? It's, it's not like, it doesn't take a lot. No. It just take one fraction of a second where you are afraid and you pull out and you're up to six Gs. I mean, five, six Gs is, is nothing you put on with in the blink of an eye. Yeah, especially with, with standard certified aircraft or whatever, they have way more weight, so they accelerate f faster. So, I mean, on, an, on our ultralight, that would be a bit more, more difficult, I assume. But it's still, just a matter of a an ultralight. It's just a matter of how quick you pull the stick yes. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. <laughs> it's very easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very easy. Huh? As quicker you pull it back, as more G you load. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. And as well, with, especially with the stall, we have high lifting wings. So the wing will grab even more. You know, it's not like an aerobatic plane where the wing is basically. Uh, completely symmetric. Yes. There is not a lot of lift generated. It's all only by the angle of attack, basically, but not by the profile itself. So with a stall plane, you can as well go over your limits pretty quick. Huh? Mm. Yeah. So, okay, the, the whole surfaces to guide it is a little bit slower and everything, but yeah. No, that's that's uh, that was my background, and it it helped tremendously. It helped tremendously. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. 
And all the time you had these huge, beautiful mountains you, you know very well because of your mm -hmm. snowboarding background. And I, I'm not going to say you're avoiding them in, in your, let's say, flying activities, but, uh, but it's not like you are into them, obviously landing on them yet. How, how, when, when, not how with that, planes. Not with the plane, not, yeah. Not with the plane. I did uh, fly a lot with the paragliding. So I uh, did passenger flights so in the winter, in the summer, with the skis and everything. Uh, but then when the, when the competition flying became more expensive, you know, more training, going international, and then I thought, okay, do I really want to do that? And just at this time, a guy approached me and said, uh, whenever you sell that plane, I'm in for buying it. And I say, okay, look, look, now let's be serious. Don't put the buck in my ear and then just step away. If you want to buy it, you give me a price and I say yes or no. So you put the price down and I was talking to Claudia and we couldn't resist. Oh. Because... You know, when you can sell an experimental for more than the building material is and so on. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good way. I miss it. I probably shouldn't sell it, but I miss it sometimes. But it was great. It's in good hands. He loves it. He flies it a lot. And my decision was to give up competition anyway. Okay. So because I wanted to go flying the glaciers. Ah. Yeah. Because eventually, uh, you know, with Switzerland and aerobatics, every time I landed, there was a complaint. You know, this really? guy called up, this guy called up. Yeah, I mean, we, the airbase is in a, in a valley and it's uh, pretty loud. And I even restricted myself uh, to... 8.30 to 11.30, afternoon from 2 to 5, not on the weekend mm -hmm. and everything. But unfortunately, there was a very, very old clause in the contract between the airfield and the town that there could be no aerobatic flying from Butterguts. And uh. they let me do it for several years, but once there was a guy founded it out and put it a claim in it and then the yeah, story was over okay. so i needed to fly five ten minutes away and do the aerobatics there and coming back and this is just bullshit because yes you know claudia was at the bottom filming in it and then uh, yeah going forth it was a nightmare so i said it's a good period let's go and do something else and i It's, was it, start looking. it's a very important comment you just said um, that uh, that Claudia was filming you, and and I just wanted you to make a small uh, aparte so so about that topic because it's it's uh, something I think personally is is very connected to to snowboarding, skateboarding as well, and and to what we do with our plane. It's very connected to to aerobatics as well. Is if you don't see yourself, so you need to film you, then it's very hard to improve yourself. Yeah, I mean, we have to be fair. Uh, aerobatic flying is an amateur sport, fully amateur. Yeah. There's no professionals in there, except the Red Bull Air Race, what's an, a different story. But it's an amateur sport, first of all. And second of all, it was not really fair for the other people in, in the flying community doing aerobatic. Why? Because I was coming with 
seven years of World Cup experience. Mm. I formed all the snowboard teams in Switzerland, freestyle competition, alpine and everything. I was I was a trainer in the World Cup for 17 years. Uh, and I know in and out how you teach somebody on a sport level. And for Claudia, who is also a teacher and she's a physics teacher by uh, studying, we know exactly how to, to train and how to make it work. So video control was key. Structured training was key. And then also have a very good trainer, Sergei Boriak, who was my trainer for many years, uh, who teached me as well. And Claudia with the video, that was a big improvement. I had inboard camera, outboard camera. I could analyze everything. So it was a huge advantage, you know, to bring that knowledge into that competition place. That's how it was possible for me to walk through these competitions and be always on the podium. Mm -hmm. Because the advantage, I, I was not the better pilot, I w but I was the better prepared pilot. <laughs> yeah, that makes a huge difference. You know, and this 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 was the the game what I was playing, and I took the same approach into the stall flying and into the glacier flying, and uh, that was the time when Hombi stepped in with an idea that we should probably buy a plane together. You know, yeah. he was coming away from his Piper Cup who was started to getting to be more too expensive and he wanted to keep on flying and he thought about why not partner up with Roland you know he has that aerobatic plane but he is looking around maybe he's interested and I was also looking at that time to buy me another plane and uh, eventually I stepped away from buying a plane together with him first of all because I thought it's not really worth the hassle and I knew he's going to fly a lot. And I fly a lot. And we are the two guys who fly the most at the airfield. So why in the hell you want to put no. two guys together on one plane who no, fly the most on you the airfield? Is, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the most frustrating <laughs> constellation, yes. yeah, yeah, construction. Yeah. So he went on with the ultralight on his own. I was not 100% convinced, to be honest. You know, you know you, you're flying... A, a high performance aerobatic plane yeah. putting 118 liters an hour while training through you know it's it, 118 liters an hour it is like 30 gallons mm -hmm. or something That's an hour huge uh, it's huge but it pulls 330 horsepower so everything is different you know approach speed a final is 90 knots you know i'm happy <laughs> if i fly 90 knots and, yeah and that was the slowest i could safely approach you know landing time uh, landing distance is like on the ground 400 meters you know and every 200 landings you change the brake pads because they were worn out you know it's, it's just a completely different story so anyway um then I was looking at him and he was doing this glacier stuff. And so, and eventually I couldn't stop it anymore. I said, okay, I need one of these. Uh, we bought the Cessna 182 in the meantime, when we sold the, the, the Votec. Yes. And uh, so I had the 182 together with a few other people. That was a really good buy 
because I was looking at all the other planes and they finally did, bought this one, you know, I flew to Sirius, the Bonanzas and everything. And you, but, you, uh, you were uh, still, still looking at certified airplanes. So, so yes, yes. So, ultra, yeah, yeah. so ultralights or light sports were not really no. yet in the scope. No. no, because I wanted to go back to travel flying. Okay. You know, I wanted to pack up the skis or the surfboard or the whatever and go places, you know. And we have that little uh, garage from a friend where we use it as a surf shack where we live in there. And it's right by the beach in North Germany on the island of Feynman. And I need, I wanted something where I can go forth and back to that place or to the Atlantic coast to go surfing. And so I w was looking into general aviation planes, flew the Moonies, flew the, everything, you know. Uh, but at the end of the day, I bought the 182 Turbo. Because at the end of the day, that plane just let you sit in either after an exhaust day of windsurfing, you're tired. It does not demand a lot. It has a nice autopilot. You sit there, you control everything. It's relaxing. And even if it goes bad. And the great thing was because I had that sport machine, I didn't need the plane, you know, like a Mooney or a... a or like a, a beach who is sporty. It's not sporty. It's a bloody plane to go from A to B. There's nothing sporty. No. You take an aerobatic plane, that's sporty. So, And then I wanted to, to extend. And uh, for my 50th birthday in Friedrichshafen, I... Uh, I bought myself the demonstrator of uh, the tail dragger of Itzepe. The, the one Havana you have now? Twin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That was the start then. And uh, Hombi was uh, relieved. Eventually, I'm coming to the ultralight. And he said, yeah, you will see. It's great and everything. I wasn't, I wasn't so sure about the Rotax stuff and everything. But... You know, the plane was less than an overhaul of the engine of the 182 <laughs> Turbo. Uh, so, yeah, we we bought it, the two of us. The guy I had the, the Cessna with, because he complained I'm always away, so the plane isn't there. So I said, yeah, let's buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then uh, that, that was the beginning of a fantastic new discovery. And... Claudia was always into the mountain. She said, I want to go more into the mountain, even more. And uh, I want to see a little bit more of the Alps, not only the ski areas, because we are basically around in winter, in the, in the, in the winter resorts, but in the summer. So I said, okay, look, we've seen so much. We flew Idaho, we flew the, 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 the back country, Canada, and so on. Uh, there's a great story about an experimental trip in north of Canada Ooh. for another time. Yes. And uh, uh, so we we decided we're going to give it a try and we try to do the mountains, the Alps with the plane. And Hombi introduced us to this and I have to say what I discovered was amazing. Because, you know, being a general aviation pilot in Europe, uh, especially in Switzerland, you're absolutely great in flying around uh, restricted airspaces. 
Because if you look at the Swiss map, it's either mountain or restricted. Yes, you know, you have no possibilities to to fly around. (laughs) Yeah, so so your mindset is completely different. You know, when you fly Canada or Alaska or in in uh, in America, it's completely different. You know, and when I uh, I've been up with Paul Claus in Alaska and flew around his place, you know, the next controlled airspace is like you know, it's like a day flying away or something like so coming back and saying that is i discovered with ultralight you kind of fly below the radar you kind of have a freedom under this huge complex airspace of europe yep. you just have to keep yourself out of the whole areas and you have to know what you're doing. But then it's a, uh, it was a freedom I never expected. It's quite easy to do, I must say. Well, yeah. Of course, if you know yeah. what to do, but it's quite easy if to, you know to, what to, do. to be yeah. out of them. Yeah, and especially Italy. A lot of people fear Italy yeah, because of why. the controllers and the yeah. airspace. I don't know why. I, I also didn't have any problem with general aviation in it. But with ultralight, it's like heaven. Yeah, it Italy is. is like heaven. And... Also, I have to say, the glacier flying, I mean, we just have to admire, we are in the middle of Europe, millions of people around, and there is these Alps, and there are multiple glacial landing spots in the middle of one of the densest populated area on this planet. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I go down to the airfield and... 25 minutes later, I'm at 3,000 meters, no cell phone reception, and you're completely off the grid. And this is absolutely fantastic. And this is what Hombi introduced me to and what I'm, I'm just loving it these days and looking forward every three minutes to, to do it. And uh, yeah. I couldn't more agree. It's it's we're so lucky. Yeah. So so you're in the middle um, of the Alps. I'm I'm a little bit further uh, in Germany, but still very close. I mean, I I also need only like ten minutes flight, and then I, I'm in the middle of the mountains. But we have a little bit more restrictions, and we we cannot land on glaciers in in Germany. Mm-hmm. Austria is more difficult. Yeah. And uh, but it's I totally agree. It's like you uh, more or less. I have the feeling you discovered in a new world you already really knew extremely well mm-hmm. because of your yes. snowboarding and skiing activities but yeah. it's uh, it's quite i'm sure it has been fascinating to rediscover it with an airplane absolutely absolutely and uh, i mean we love taking the tent and the skis and then uh, fly on a glacier uh, camp up there you know do a ski tour pack up, fly to the next glacier the next day, camp up there. And not a lot of people do it that way uh, in Switzerland. Uh, uh, But for us, it was like, we love the Arctic. You know, we do a lot Mm. of Arctic expedition, Claudia and me. So now the Arctic, kind of the Arctic, being in the cold, being exposed to the elements and everything, comes with a 30 minutes flight or with an hour's flight. And, uh, and, the mountains and everything so the glaciers it's absolutely great and we're having a blast we're having an absolutely blast in the moment yeah it's, well, it's, it's really fast it's beautiful 
So if I reckon you you've been doing this now, I would say for the past five years, because I think or something mm -hmm. like that. We met around 2015, I would yeah. say, in yeah. Italy, <laughs> again Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, oh, that's that's yes. Yeah, I I mean we bought that uh, that plane. Uh, probably it wasn't my 50th birthday. Pro it was my birthday, but I oh. just recall it's not my 50th. It's, it's, I'm already already a little bit older. Bloody else. Wow. Time flies by. <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah, I put uh, over, I probably put about 200 hours in it wow. per per year. Now, that's that's a good basis because you're really, you're a really busy man. I mean, you have several companies and and mm -hmm. ski schools. Yes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just dedicated the time, and uh, I knew from experience, you know, it starts. You get the hang. I, I can speak for me. I get the hang of out of a plane if I come towards three, four hundred landings. And about 200 hours. Then I start really get to know the plane. Before that, it's always, yeah, let's see. And, oh, ooh, discover this, discover this. And I knew I want to become confident as quick as possible because there are a lot of small incidents in glacier flying, but they are incidents in glacier flying. And I just knew I want to become very proficient pretty quick and uh, so i think in the in the first three weeks i put like 500 landings on wow. but you had the best you know? partner to do that with Hombi together because like yeah he know, was like... not so much into training no okay. i did that on completely on my own oh, you wow. know looking at video talking to paul claus uh how about training and what's important and so on and uh so that was that was uh that was more kind of uh, myself trying so, to reach the limit. Can you please tell us, because I, I should ask somebody, some uh, so other people will ask definitely, how is the, quickly the regulation, if you're flying in Europe, if you're flying an ultralight, uh, or if you know if you're flying a, a general aviation aircraft on skis, what do you need to do to be allowed to land on a glacier in Switzerland, obviously? Okay. Uh, first of all, we have to to make clear Switzerland does not have an ultralight category. There is no like like light sport aircraft ultralight. Let's put that together as the same thing. Uh, uh, there isn't a pilot license. There isn't uh, teaching of it, and they're kind of accepted in a certain way. So our planes, Hombi and mine, and mine now, is registered in France. Mm -hmm. And I'm flying on the ultralight license of France. So uh, as I have my license not in Switzerland, I have it in, in Austria. That becomes, because I, I was f teaching flying, a flight instructor I did in Austria, just because it was the closest airfield to uh, home base where it was a school for instructors. Mm -hmm. So, um, for instance, the Austrian they do accept ultralight hours on the PPL. Others don't. To my belief, it's the only 
uh, EASA country who does. Oh, I think the yes. other might yeah. follow. Yes. So we hope so. <laughs> yeah. Where are the places where you can fly on glacier? First of all, it's France, Switzerland, and Italy in some areas. Yes. So now let's take for instance France. France has separated the airfields who are officially landing spots for generation aircrafts. And there are ultralight places. So you have more ultralight glacier areas where you can land than general aviation mountain airfields. So to be certified and to fly a certified aircraft into a mountain field, you need a formation and you need currency. The same for Switzerland. Switzerland, on the other hand, does not have the separation between ultralight airfields or places and normal glacier mounting landing spots. So in Switzerland, flying with a French ultralight, it's not denied in the books because the books were written before ultralight came off. So I kind of fly actually there, but I also did my PPL mountain ski license. Ah, okay. So whatever, I mean, I can't fly with the PPL on the ultralight because you need an ultralight license. So that means if I fly in Switzerland, I fly with an aircraft who is not denied but also not certified in Switzerland, but you are allowed to overfly and land in Switzerland and store it for a certain time. But you need to have a PPL license with a, with a ski certification to be able to land fully 100% on the glacier. Ah, so, okay. So guy think, with me a guy with me having only the uh German sport license of so ultralights and the French license. Well I have a glider license as well, but uh having only these ultralights light sport aircraft license, officially it would be not possible for me to land with my bird on skis on a Swiss glacier. Theoretically. I don't know if officially you will get the correct answer mm -hmm. but because there isn't any written statement like this because when the law was putting out or the regulation there isn't any mention about that what it is mentioned is you need to be a certified pilot so you need to have your endorsement or your your extension of the license to fly that now okay you can't do that on your german ultralight license because there is nothing like a formation for mountain flying. No. But, but, on the French one, you can. There is the Abbaye de Montagne. So there is like the B of the mountain, it's translated. And this is a formation who gives you a certification from the association. So it's not from the federal office, but it's from the association who is in charge for, for doing it. So if you have this, you could then claim I'm formed and I'm 
kind of certified to fly on glaciers in the mountains. So then it would be a question of what would be the final decision on the judge if he would have a problem. Okay. And does it apply to, to wheel operations as well? So, I mean, there are a few, yes. there are a few spots. I in, mean, okay. yeah. in, in Switzerland, we only have two spots where you can wheel land on the mountain. Ah. Okay. okay. It's Côte de Coeur and Bec de Nonda. They're very close together. And these are the only two spots where you can actually do your wheel mountain landing license in Switzerland. Mm. Where in France, you have multiple... Oh. Altiports, where you can tarmac or gravel or grass for general aviation and also many, plenty of private and official ultralight places where you can go land. On snow, on glacier, on gravel, grass, in the mountains. Similar to and Italy. Italy it's, Italy, it's the same, but Italy is a little bit different. Mm. Between the license in Italy is a sport license and the Italian government and regulation doesn't see an ultralight as an aircraft. It sees it as a leisure object like uh, a dirt bike. So that's why in Italy you have the difference between the normal ultralight And they call it advanced ultralight. Because it, by regulation, you don't need a radio in an ultralight in Italy. You just need a, you just need a landing light to indicate that you're going to land on that field. And that means you can fly below 500 feet anytime in the week and below 1,000 feet on the weekends, except going into CTRs or forbidden areas yep. on an ultralight. And you can land whenever the landlord gives you permission to land because it's like you driving around with a dirt bike hmm. because you're not under the aviation regulation. With an ultralight avanzata, it's a different story because there you can land also on certain not all of it, on certain controlled airfields. And that's why you need the transponder and uh, a radio and a radio license. Great. I, I think we covered quite a lot uh, about mountain flying. I, I would have a, uh, another question about the um, landing on the glaciers. And um, this is something I'm, let's say, I'm being a snowboarder as well, a skateboarder. Um, I, I'm... I would like to think that my kind of snowboarding, skateboarding background is helping me to find some spots when I'm I'm some river bar, uh, gravel bars and and riverbeds to find some interesting places where to land because I'm always looking for potential to spots to to skateboard or to snowboard. I'm I'm I have the feeling that I look differently and. What do you think about that? Do you think it's it's it could be something valid? Do you think because you have been so much in the mountains, you see, you have so much experience also on the snow, uh, I'm sure it helps you a lot to define if a if a, a mountain, a snow spot or a glacier is suitable to land or not, especially on a first track. Um, 
and about uh, wheel landing on a riverbed, for example, do you think it helps? I absolutely agree on the glacier stuff, and uh, but wheel landing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it. But let's face the fact: I'm, I'm doing now my whole life. I'm doing what? Looking down from a cable car or from a chairlift into a powder field to understand where my next line is going to be. So basically, you look from above onto the ground and think, okay, I'm going to go there. Oh, the snow looks better over there. And oh, that looks, oh, now that looks a little bit crusty. So this experience helped me tremendous on the glacier because for me to read the snow was not an issue. Mm. To read the glacier where you drive over, you know, I probably... I, I once re recalled it, my trainings on the glacier. I was constantly, for 11 years of my life, I was being on the glacier, mm. if I take all the time together. So this is like living at 3,000 meters for day and night on, on the glacier when you work, when you're 57 and you work the whole life in the winter sport areas. That's what it ends up. So mm. it's an environment I know. I didn't know it by the plane, but for me, it was just putting together what? Snowboarding experience, being on the glacier experience, not to the level like Homby as a mountaineer, mm. but being on the glacier, seeing the crevasses, knowing the danger, know how it looks like, you know, and reading the snow from above, from the gondola, from the, from the chairlift and everything. And this is just what I think is very difficult if you're a general aviation pilot, even if you're a great pilot, and there certainly are pilots more capable than me, but on the glacier, it all comes down to reading the snow. You, it call, comes down to see how steep is that slope and with that snow how good my plane gonna glide you know where i need to put the landing spot to be able to turn in front of that crevasse you know or it that steepness how much power i need because today now at two o'clock in april i need much more power than like in january at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning because the snow transformed already and it's sticky or whatever it is. And this is just, this is just, yeah. The environment snow is what, what is my environment basically. So to put the plane into the environment where, you know, the best, it's probably a very logic and easy step for me. Uh, so I just need to apply the skills of approaching in it and having the right procedure and stuff like that to, to, to also make it safe in terms of doing a mountain landing on a glacier. So, but uh, this did help tremendously, but I feel a big lack when I'm uh, landing on wheels in riverbeds or mountain fields or Like last year, we've been uh, five and a half weeks in, in Iceland with the planes, Hombi and me, and we did hundreds of landing uh, off-piste and only off-piste. And 
I had a big learning curve there because it's completely different, yeah. different, different I'm, I'm, way. Um, so, so I, I could say I would dream of making a Hombi special with you, especially about that trip you did last year in Iceland with him because it will mm -hmm. interest definitely. I, I'm, I'm, I want to know what happened personally, definitely, and and uh, I'm sure so many people would like to know how did you pack the planes, how did you yeah. ship them to Iceland. There's a very cool video yeah. on your YouTube channel to channel to see that because you ship them uh, in a container uh, yeah. and about the flying over there. It's it's uh, it it would be huge to do that together and um, and I would love to yeah. do that. Yeah, especially. And mm. uh, you know, we we barely covered the, it's more than a little <laughs> bit my story, but the, we barely covered the whole thing with flying the glaciers with Hombi and and that stuff. This is a, a whole lot of difference, you know, when uh, when you're around with a with a guy with that experience, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm a quite experienced in snow sports but being on an alpine alpinism is not my my major goal you know i do it a little bit but not to the extent Hombi did it and this is was just this is you know all the trips uh, to the mont blanc area and all this stuff and uh, overnighting in the huts and stuff this is just fantastic and uh, yeah yeah and alpinism also too. yeah yeah so we are we are touching the the end of uh, of our podcast, but uh, I would like to to make um let's say a, a small questionnaire, uh, quick questions. Um, so so the the float guys they say splash and dash when they when they test the the water and and uh, and fly again, uh, take mm -hmm. off again. So uh, I I I like in our stall or backcountry uh, uh, I would say kind of bolter because um, the navy guys when they land on an aircraft carrier they they make a bolter and they fly again so so we we touch the ground or touch the gravel bar or or touch the snow to check how it is and uh, when it's possible of course on a glacier upward it might be sometimes quite difficult to do that um, so tail dragger or nose dragger. For what? For an airplane. For an airplane. Okay. Uh, I bought a tail dragger because of the reason if you want to land on a glacier, there is no way you can do that with a nose dragger. You can do it, but then you're very limited to the places you can go. Uh, by side that, I would say if you skip the glacier, there are planes like the Savannah from ECP or also the Zenit stall. And if you look at this, the capabilities of these planes are not away from a tail dragger, not very far. But I think a lot of people don't understand one thing. In life and in this situation, you need to make it as easy as possible. You need to give your abilities the most support you can give. And the, and the nose wheel aircraft, tricycle gear, will definitely give you a huge advantage because the landing is going to be much easier. If you have the right plane. I mean, we're not talking about 
taking a plane who has not a sturdy nose wheel uh, into a, a river bar with big blocks. But let's face the fact, you can take a Savannah or a, or a Fennet stall, put some big wheels on it, like 29ers or a 26er, and have a big nose fork and land it nicely on the main wheels. At the end of the day, I would say you're going to have less trouble. You're going to have more fun and you need less experience to become a safe operation than when you put the tail dragger in the same situation. Because look, just by physics, by, by bare physics, the tail dragger has his advantages, uh, but it also has a big disadvantage as the center of gravity is behind the main wheels. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever you speak to a tail dragger pilot, where's the problem? It's a tail wheel. Always, all the time. It's The tail wheel is the part of the tail wheel plane who makes the most troubles. But there are operation and there is areas where you can't operate a nose wheel craft, especially on steep glacier parts, especially on uh, difficult riverbeds. But if you start, if I would recommend it to somebody who's not going on a glacier or landing on just frozen surfaces or lake, I would have to say, Safety is primarily the case in aviation. If you look differently on a different aspect and you put safety not in the first place, I think you're you're going to go and having trouble a day earlier or later. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would say if you don't need the end possibility of a tail dragger, you're better off with a nose gear plane. Mm. Oh, a pretty wise choice. Uh, I totally agree uh, with your arguments. Um, there's the personal. It's not as cool. <laughs> well, I, did... I love the tail draggers, yeah. and it's it, it's it's way cool. I think there are planes that are looking much better as a tail dragger, and uh, I mean, you know, uh, Cessna 180 on nice bush wheels wow. and stuff. It's a beauty in the world. Yeah. Uh, But let's face the fact, uh, yeah, if it's not super rough and super difficult, are you really needed? And are you competent enough to fly it as safe as you would a nose wheeler? And I think for most of the pilots, Mm. the tail dragger is still a big challenge. If you don't fly enough, yes. Yeah, yeah. You need to fly a tail dragger much more than a nose wheel plane. And, And train with it a lot. I mean, it's, yes. it's always the question: What you, how do you fly? But yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, that that one, the next one is tricky. What's you you flew you flew a lot of planes. So so I'm going mm-hmm. to ask what your favorite plane is or was. I think it will be it's going to be difficult to answer. But uh, do you have a favorite coming over the absolutely. top of all the ones? You absolutely. Had? Yeah, I have favorite planes. So. If you fly the transatlantic, you put two two turbines there, and that for me is a king air because Mm -hmm. you can stuff a lot of things and you can go 
So that would be the dream plane for me. If I would, could wish, I would like to have a hangar with a King Air 90 or a King Air 200. Then I would like to have my beloved Wotec back for aerobatics or some pits for having fun. Then I would like to travel. I would probably go with a 182 turbo I have. Probably not. I would probably take a 206. And for stall flying, yeah, I would probably stick to the Savannah I have in the mm-hmm. moment. So you see, I'm a pretty lucky guy to be yeah. flown all these airplanes uh, at some uh, occasions. And um, yeah, I just would love to put them all together in the hangar. But uh, you, Maxim, have to pay the fuel bills. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, then you, you will fly even less than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great, great. So, but uh, I think when I get older, I would limit myself to an ultralight. Okay. Uh, and then it definitely be a tail dragger ultralight and an ultralight who has a little bit more speed as mm-hmm. the one I have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah. And to be able to do both landing on glaciers, landing on mountain airfields but also cruise a little bit faster, mm-hmm. you know, to go places. Because now I still have the Cessna where I can do that. Mm-hmm. But once found getting tighter, uh, yeah, you need to start doing compromise. Mm. Every plane is a compromise. Totally. That's, that's yeah. It's always yeah. the case. Yeah. Yeah. And the best is, Try not to buy a, a plane with too many compromise. You know, go for the fully aerobatic, unlimited airplane. Go for the fully stall plane and go for a great travel machine. Uh, and uh, so this is, I think, you just have to choose. If you try to match everything, you're never going to be happy on either of these areas. Except probably the one 180. Who does pretty much everything. or the one eighty? Yeah, mm. who does pretty much everything except aerobatics? Mm. Uh, and probably so. one of the most beautiful GA airplane ever produced. Well, personal taste. <laughs> yeah, I think if you ask a Mooney pilot, uh, <laughs> he would say. I flew Mooney's. I have to say, uh, Mooney in the air, it's uh, probably a more sleek and the more nicer looking aircraft mm. than on an 82 or 185 but mm. uh yeah that's it just has it proposed and it's uh i think it's still one of the most fascinated aircraft ever being built with together with the viking balancas probably mm-hmm. who are also absolutely stunning planes uh yeah awesome well roland it's been it's been a pleasure talking with you uh, I think we barely scratched the surface of the snow. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and as I already said, I hope we'll have the possibility to, to make another one. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure we sure. do. And, uh, and I also really hope we will meet uh, again for a trip together because this is something we've not done yet, really, uh, except meeting no. in, in Italy. Different locations, yeah. 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 Uh, and if I recall the trip I had with, with Hombi around Great Britain in 2017, then uh, I would love to do something similar with you 
in another country that I'm sure we would enjoy it pretty much. Sure. So we should do that. Definitely should. Yeah. Awesome. Roland. Then uh, big cheers to Claudia from me. I will do so. Wish you a nice evening and uh, we'll keep in touch. And that's the show for today, folks. What a first episode. Thanks to Roland for sharing his stories and giving me a reason to plan our next trip together. You can follow him on Instagram at Primus Roland and watch his amazing glacier landing videos on YouTube at Roland Primus. Now it's time to share this podcast. Tell a friend and review whatever platform you're listening. Thanks to those who do and will. Folks, in the next episode, we'll be back in South Bavaria with another legend of our European ultralight stall community, Mr. Thomas Tom Huber, who has been the German Slin Aviation Savage dealer for the past 15 years. A true backcountry aviation enthusiast who started flying in British Columbia, provided air support in North Africa during Rally Red racing events, literally started the stall community in Germany and around, and fell in love with his wife for this fascinating country which is Alaska. Until next time everyone, thanks for joining the Stall Collective. <laughs>